Welcome to the QAV podcast. My name is Cameron. This is a weekly investing podcast where I chat with my friend Tony. Tony's a very successful investor. He's been doing it for about 30 years. His returns on average are about double the market over that period of time. And he's able to get those returns because he developed a system of value investing that we call QAV, quality at value. How do you find good quality companies and how do you buy them at a discount to their intrinsic value? It's basically a scoring system. We look at the fundamentals of the companies and that's what we teach our club members. Uh, in terms of the podcast, we have a free episode each week. It goes for about half an hour. That's what you're listening to now. We have a longer episode. usually goes for an hour to an hour and a half. And I'll tell you more about that at the end of the episode. Anyway, let's get into this week's show. Welcome to QAV TK. We're recording this on Tuesday, the 23rd of January. It's episode 704. How was the barn burgling, Tony? Yeah, really good. Great fun. Uh, first couple of days were very windy, which made golf difficult, but, you know, that's part of golf. And then um, third day was lovely. But, yeah, the whole thing was just great. Good food, good golf, good place. We um, we flew into Launceston, and then it's about an hour and a quarter, hour and a half northeast of there. It's on the coast. Beautiful, beautiful scenery. Little town called Bridport, a fishing village nearby, and we went in there one night for for dinner to a place called The Bunker, which I think is the um, the RSL club in town. And it was just really good food. I don't drink. Um, sometimes I feel like I wouldn't be <laughs> wouldn't mind having one. And they're the kind of nights that uh, I, I would have oh, – I wasn't tempted, but, you know, like it was good wine and good food and good setting. So uh, it was lovely. But then, you know, the next day you get up and play golf and there's a lot of sore heads and I'm just glad I didn't drink. So that was good. How long have you been off the booze <laughs> now? Uh, 15 months at the end of this month. Wow. Well over a year. Mm. That's impressive. Oh, yeah. Um. Right. Well, we don't have a lot to talk about today, Tony. No questions today. And that sort of brings me to the first article for the for today, which is from the ASX. Retail traders are retreating from the ASX. This is the AFR, not the ASX, the AFR, talking about the ASX. This is Jonathan Shapiro uh, came out yesterday. The army of day traders that stormed the Australian share market during the pandemic is showing signs of fatigue, but could mount a comeback in 2024 if the Reserve Bank starts cutting interest rates. Morgan Stanley's equity strategists, who have closely tracked the activity of retail trading, said December's data revealed a further decline in the share of market trading volumes accounted for retail traders, also known as day traders. By their numbers, retail traders accounted for less than 5% of total trading volumes, down from the 8.3% peak reached in February 2021. That share is also down from 6.2% last January. So that's a pretty big drop from 8.3% mm -hmm. down to 5% over the course of the last, uh, what's that, three years, I guess. Um, and I was talking to Stephen Mab, uh, chairman of the Australian Shareholders Association and QAV club member yesterday, and uh, I mentioned that we'd seen a big drop off in QAV membership over the last year or two, year in particular as well. 
And he said they've seen a big drop off in ASA uh, membership as well over the course of the last year. But he said, you know, it, it tends to grow in bullish years and then declines in volatile or down years. The people who stay disciplined uh, yeah. succeed when those people come in. And they did. They Like when they came in, they brought a ton of money into the market. And as we know, a lot of it wasn't invested wisely. It went into <laughs> shares like Appen, which we'll talk about in a minute. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, you know, they, they don't have a discipline of trading through the upswings and the downswings. So they come in with fresh money, fresh blood, and we profit from that because we're in the market already when they come in with all that money because we're fully invested and we go through the upswing. And then they all get scared when the market has a downturn, particularly, we've had a particularly bad downturn. And I was saying to him, like, you know, and the thing that gets me is we bang on on this show all the time about staying fully invested, staying disciplined, up market, down market. And our listeners know that. It's not like they don't know because we <laughs> we go, we we reiterate that point over and over. And I know that, you know, I get emails from some members of saying, you know, I got one from somebody this morning saying that, He's sort of basically cashed out a lot of his investment portfolio because he's buying a property and people lose jobs or they lose marriages or they move or, you know, there are lots of legitimate reasons why people have to, uh, you know, sell off their share portfolio and they're no longer active investors because life takes them in different directions. But I'm sure there's a percentage of people too that just suffer from fatigue, capitulation, as you call it. Yeah, well, I think the other the other dimension, you know, everything you said there I agree with and I think it's true. There's another dimension to all this, and that is that during COVID times, the federal government allowed people to draw down from their super um, as a way of, you know, staying afloat if they lost their job or whatever other hardships they had due to COVID. Um, and we know anecdotally that a lot of those people just took them took that money and because there wasn't as much sport going on and they couldn't bet on what they normally bet on, they took their drawdown from super and put it into Bitcoin, put it into the share market, um, sat in their couch and traded shares or coins or whatever they did. Yeah, right. And, you know, the the, the, the other potential reason why they've left the market is because they lost all their money. Yeah. They lost a significant part of it. So I think that's part of it too. The interesting stat, though, out of all of that was I think you said that the share of – now, the AFR calls them day traders or their source calls them day traders. I think we just got to clarify up that terminology. Yeah. They're basically saying they're retail investors. Yeah. Day trading as a term means something else, which is basically people whose business it is to sit on the at a screen all day and open their account in the morning, put it in the market and close it down at night Yeah, um, and just trade per day rather than – um, on the longer t- over a longer time frame like we do. Um, but retail investors, the small end of the market, um, it's interesting. I think you said it was down by uh, about 3%, so down from 8 to 5. Mm. But elsewhere in the article, it also says the share market, I think, or the money invested or new money coming in, I forget now what the term was, is also down. So if retail investors are down as a percentage plus the overall number that they're a percentage of is going down, and it's actually even worse than what those numbers look. Mm. 
But yeah, I mean, if fatigue, capitulation, you know, I had this conversation with a guy in Barnburgle. He was asking me how the podcast is going. I said, it's all good. Our dummy portfolio is tracking along nicely at double market. It's been going for four years. And I said, however, we have had lower subscriber numbers in the last 12 months. Um, and, you know, asking around in the industry, that's pretty standard as the market comes off, uh, that people, you know, stop, stop either, either cancel their subscriptions or stop investing. And, you know, I said, it's just a classic retail investor who buys high and sells low mm. and just chases the next, the next idea and it's, or the next story. Mm. And as we've said, we, you don't want to listen to stories. And, we'll, and like, you know, Lionstown, the, the company that's a lithium miner and Core Lithium, which is now shut its mine, um, you know, they're doing terrible. But last year, all we could hear about was lithium stories and how good that was going to be and how Elon Musk had knocked on all these doors and wanted to sign up deals to take lifetimes amounts of, of lithium and nickel. And, and the nickel market's almost shut as well now because, well, not shut, but Australian mines are shutting down because Indonesia is flooding the market with um, with cheaper nickel and nickel prices way down. Something else which is needed for the electrification theme that's going on. So, yeah, that's I mean that's a that's a point we make in on our coffee mugs. If you want to buy a story, go to a bookstore because there's a lot more that goes on than just the story. And yes. Um, electric vehicles will be a thing and yes potentially there will be no more internal combustion engine vehicles one day um, but there are even now stories that I'm reading saying that lithium won't be used in batteries for in, uh, for electric vehicles going forward that there's a different way of storing energy which is far more efficient and you can charge a car battery in 20 minutes wow. um, using some other um, mineral besides lithium right. so you know that's just a factor of mining and of Business, in the mining business mm -hmm. is that they go through booms and, and bust cycles. And, you know, and it's the old uh, taxi cab tipster or Uber driver tipster. When you get a, a tip from your from your taxi cab driver, you pretty much know it's very, very late in the, in the cycle because just think of how many hands or how many ears that tip has passed through before it gets to you sitting in the back of a, an Uber or a cab. The Lion's Town, Lion Town article in Chanticleer says, uh, Gina Reinhardt's lithium love affair faces Lion Town test. Lion Town is the poster child for lithium's price plunge and the news is getting worse. So it says, Lion Town will need to drastically scale back its ambitions at Kathleen Valley. The 3 million tonne per year mine set to start production this year will go ahead but the development work for the mine's eventual 4 million tonne per year underground expansion will be put on ice and uh, talks about Gina Reinhardt's involvement in it. But it says, I like this, on October 15th, so that's, what, three months ago, the company was sitting on a $6.6 .6 billion takeover offer from US lithium giant Albemarle. But Lion Town's suitor abandoned its bid the following day, and just 14 weeks down the track, Lion Town is worth just $2.2 billion. The stock crashed another 21% on Monday to $0.94. Cents. With hindsight, it would appear Albemarle's decision to walk had much to do with the looming lithium price crash. But at the time, it was blamed largely on the intervention of Reinhardt, whose investment vehicle, Hancock Prospecting, spent $1.3 billion, or $3 a share, 
to build what was effectively a blocking stake in Liontown, one of several stakes in lithium and critical minerals juniors it took stakes in last year. So uh, that's a big drop. It's a huge drop. And um, it's interesting, the, the whole Gina Reinhardt dimension, I think, is interesting as well, because <clears throat> she stepped up because she thought the company was going to be taken over and taken overseas. And um, she wanted to block that. But she's taking the sort of, but she's also taking the sort of classic approach to this, which a lot of retail investors don't do. She's not putting all her eggs in one basket. She is, um, she knows that the you know, the the mining industry can go boom and bust. So she's a she's diversifying away from iron ore, and b she's putting her eggs in a lot of different baskets, not just line town, so she can absorb <clears throat> when one doesn't go as well. I suspect that it might play out, um, depends on what her appetite is, that she'll loan the money that the company needs to open. I think there's a um, a new development, a new mining tenement they're trying to develop, and that was one of the reasons for um, getting Abermal into the company was to get fresh capital to do that. Um, and the collapse in the share price yesterday, I believe, was because the banks refused to lend it the money to do the necessary development work because they didn't see a future the lithium price um, in the in the medium term recovering, so um, they're left high and dry. Now, whether Gina steps up and, and puts that money in, I don't know, but that's a possibility. So she could help in that way. But my point is that <clears throat> she didn't just bet on one lithium company. She's not just betting on lithium companies. She's got a whole mining portfolio of investments, um, and she she knows to do that to ride out the storm. But a lot of retail investors will have one or two lithium companies in there. And their portfolio and a, and a whole heap of other companies outside of that sector in their portfolio, which is fine, but um, it, it's diversification as well. But if you're going to play in a speculative space like that, it it, it can work out really well because uh, the you know if in the early days you were buying lithium companies before they were having any sort of income, and when they started to produce and sell, and the lithium price went up. You did really, really well, and there's plenty, been plenty of stories in the Fin Review this last twelve months about people who've made tens of millions of dollars, retail investors who put you know eighty thousand dollars into a lithium mine as a stock investment when it was speculative, and now they're they're worth fifty or sixty million dollars. So <clears throat> that can happen, but you you unless you have some kind of detailed knowledge and you're and you're a retail investor, you're more the more prudent thing to do is to just to make it a very small part of your portfolio. Mm. Um, but the even better thing to do is to focus on companies that make money and have um, existing proven business models and have quality business models, mm. just as we are. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm going back through our show notes over the last year or so about lithium. We've talked about lithium a lot and I think we flagged that it became a sell back in July, which meant well, I think I got out of PLS because of that. Mm -hmm. But I was looking back earlier, about a year ago, 18th of January, we had a story. Um, somebody had sent us a screenshot from Livewire. They were talking about the most tipped small caps for 2023. One of them was Linetown Resources. Um, it was trading at, let me see, what was it trading at back then? LTR. It was trading at $1.54 back then. Then it went up to, like, I think it peaked at about $3.15 in June. 
Uh, it's currently at 91 cents. So <laughs> it was, it did have a good year until September. And then the mm. price caught up with it. Call Lithium was another one they were predicting. They were saying was most tipped. CXO, CXO a year ago was trading at a uh, dollar eleven. It's now trading at nineteen and a half cents. <laughs> <laughs> there was a few others on and, there too. And yeah, this reminds me of the GameStop saga when yeah. you when you read out all the. Uh, Wall Street investment funds who made a lot of money out of shorting game stock, even though they didn't, um, they may have lost some on the way up. Um, it, this is classic Wall Street behavior, right? It's people getting into things late and then losing all their money on the way out. Um, and I imagine there were plenty of investment firms who were short. And I remember doing the pulled pork on call lithium, and it had a very high yeah. amount of um, short uh, short sellers in their on their registers. So, yeah, yeah I mean there are. Yeah, these things can hurt. If you're buying a story, um, be very careful of buying at the peak. Um, just because someone made a lot of money on the way up and you didn't. Mm. I know we're banging on about this, Cam, but it's so it's it's almost teaching the QAV story by inverting it, right? Mm. Because we, I mean, I owned Pilbara Minerals at some stage last year, mm. and as you said, the commodity was a three-point sell, and I sold out of mm -hmm. it. And, I can't remember if I made money or well, if I did, it wouldn't have been that much, I don't think. I think it paid a good dividend from memory mm. at the time because it was a lithium mine that was producing, and that's why I liked it. Mm. Um, but I'm intact. The money I used to buy Pilbara is still there, invested in something else. I, I haven't tried to ride it all the way down. Mm. Um, so all the things that we talk about in QAV – about not following stories, about not following booms, about not listening to the fear of missing out, about finding companies that are at least making money so you can look at the numbers and see how profitable they are and you can decide whether they're worth investing in or not, has all played out in this lithium boom. Mm. So it's 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 unfortunately it's the same story that keeps playing out time and time again and it leads to the story you lead to, led off with, which was that retail investors get burnt and they leave the market. Mm. Yeah, I'm just looking at uh, PLS for the light portfolios. Yeah, so we owned it uh, in a uh, couple of light portfolios. I owned it in my super portfolio as well. We had it in the dummy portfolio. Bought them all around June or July, around about $4.80 in June, five up to $5, $5.05, I think, the dummy portfolio. But then we got out when it became a sell, when uh, lithium became a sell. It's now trading at $3.30. So it's fallen a long way from where we bought in. I'd hate to think mm. you know, where we would be if we kept holding it while lithium went down. But yeah, yeah the commodity sell. So it was a rule one sell for the dummy portfolio, my super. But for the lights portfolios, it was... Um, we got out of the commodity sell. I only lost 2%, 3% on it because we got out so quickly yeah. when lithium became a sell. Yeah, right. Um, versus what we would have lost if we didn't have the commodity sell giving us a tip-off. I was going to say, of course, lithium hasn't been the only boom in the last 12 months. Mm. And the Fin Reviewer had another story today about it as well, um, about another company called Appen. Yeah. And Appen's... Appen's been around for a long time. I'm, I was just trying to look up 
what it did when it started. My memory of it is it was making circuit boards um, for companies. So it was the it was seen as being the picks and shovels um, for any sort of tech, uh, you know, boom that was going on, and it and it's had a real boom and bust um, life cycle. And as these tech companies do, they pivot. And the thing that Appen pivoted into most recently was the uh, provision of huge data sets to people like Google to um, hone their AI large language models. And um, so another AI, I know, I, I know the AI boom is, is dear to your heart. Uh, people piled into Appen because of uh, the pivot into, uh, into providing large data sets to Google um, about 12 to 18 months ago. And of course, um, just recently in the last day or so, Google's walked away and said, no, we've got enough data now. Thank you very much. And the app and share price has tanked as well. So again, another story. I mean, I think, I think this is interesting, Cam. It's, it's people need to fundamentally think about how they view the stock market and what its role is. It'll always have a role to play in terms of speculation. Uh, cause, because, uh, a lot of companies who are on the, on the ASX or any stock market, do so because they can't take a business plan to the bank and get a loan for it um, because it's, un- it's largely unproven or it's or it's um, it's on a new sort of frontier like AI or whatever, um, and so they rely on people to back them and 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 private equity does that and venture capital does that. But again, they they have a lot of experience at doing it and they they have very large portfolios of these investments. So their risk is reduced across any one company going broke. And it's also reduced on the upside if they don't if they if they only have one or two companies that do really well, then the, the portfolio gets a kind of average return across the whole the whole bandwidth. But um, unless you've got insider information or some kind of deep industry knowledge, it's really hard as a retail investor to make money that way, to be speculative. Mm. Unless you're a mining expert and understand the market mm. and understand you know, the life cycles of mines and, and all that kind of stuff. It's hard to get in on at the right time. Uh, I mean, you know, I remember uh, Jeff Wilson from Wilson Asset Management saying 20 or 30 years ago, the best time to buy a mining stock is when it's on its highest PE. You know, that's when it's it's cheapest. And that's kind of ironic because, um, you know, it's it's that way because it's not making any money. So it's, it's, the, it's the time when it's least investable. But he often finds that's the time to buy in because it's the most speculative. Um the same goes for things like AI booms as well. I mean, yes, people have made money out of NVIDIA and investing in that, and the MAG7 are doing well in the States. Um, but I don't know how long that will go for as well because it's being, it's being driven by the by the FOMO, by fear of missing out now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll probably all, – all these things are priced to perfection, and um, that's not a great time to buy a stock. So I think in terms of what is this teaching us, it's teaching us how we view the market – and what we are, are we speculative investors? Are we sort of trying to be quasi-venture capitalists and actually do a better job than the pro-venture capitalists? Or are we saying, no, no, there are a lot of, we're investors and there are a lot of quality, solid, money-making businesses out there and all we have to do is find them and then decide if it's the right price or not that we're prepared to pay. Mm. And I think that's the easiest thing to do. In terms of, and the safest thing to do in terms of investing in the share market. Mm. Yeah, look, I do think AI is going to absolutely revolutionise life as we know it over the course of the next decade. But 
who's going to win, if anyone is going to win that mm. race, I don't think anyone can know. I mean, I think the Mag 7 are a relatively safe bet. NVIDIA maybe not because, you know, there are plenty of opportunities for people to come along and build new chipsets to run this thing, run AI farms on. And everyone is getting into that now. Microsoft are talking about it. Meta are talking about it. OpenAI are talking about building their own. Um, China's working on a bunch. And NVIDIA kind of has a little bit of a monopoly on the GPU space for running AI farms at the moment, but that won't be the case for much longer, I don't think. The other guys, the other big tech companies are safe to an extent that it costs a lot of money right now to build a large language model that can perform mm -hmm. at the level of ChatGPT4. You're talking hundreds of millions, up to billions of dollars to buy the GPUs and then to run them. All the, you know, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, has been banging on a lot about this recently, like we need way more power generation on the planet to run these things. Yeah, right. But <laughs> the flip side to that argument is what he and others are also saying is we're very early on in the AI revolution right now. We still really don't understand how it works. Even Ilya Sutskova, the guy who until the failed coup <laughs> six weeks ago was the chief um, research officer at OpenAI and uh, was the one of the masterminds behind ChatGPT. You know, even I, I watched interviews with him late last year. Is like, the thing is, we don't know how it works. We, you know, <laughs> we had a sense a couple of years ago that if you threw more compute at this thing and scaled it up, it could probably do some amazing things. So they just started throwing thousands and thousands of GPUs at it. And all of a sudden it developed some form of emergent intelligence. They're like, we don't know why. We don't know why it is doing <laughs> that. But it is. but here's the thing is that everyone that I pay attention to this space, which is those guys and Kurzweil and um, Wolfram and uh, you know Musk and all of these guys, D Gates that are thinking deeply about it, is that we will figure it out at some point. And when we figure out how it's doing what it's doing, we will probably realize that the models don't need to be as big as they are. You know, right. we've we've just like thrown a whole bunch of shit at a wall and eventually we'll work out, oh, it's just this bit here where the magic happens. Yeah. We can get rid of all of that. And when that happens, you won't need 50,000 GPUs to run a large language model, you'll be able to do it on much less compute, which makes it more accessible to more businesses and more companies. And you don't necessarily need to have the wherewithal to throw, you know, $10 billion at it to uh, scale it up. So anyway, I guess my point is just that it's very early days and we really don't know how it's going to play out over the next few years. And you know, everyone thinks Microsoft's got this massive moat now because of its stake in OpenAI, and it doesn't actually control OpenAI as a lot of people seem to think. It just has uh, a deal where it gets like fifty-one percent of the profits that it generates in the short term. But um, 
you know, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Open AI could, I keep saying, could be the Netscape of the browser wars, mm-hmm. you know. Netscape for a few years there back yeah. in the mid-90s looked like they were going to rule the world. And yep. very quickly they tumbled and fell and disappeared and became a division of Oracle, I think, at some point, you know, after Microsoft crushed them. I was part of that. Yeah, and know. that's... So let me ask you the question. You have a lot more knowledge on the AI space than I have. Um, where would, if you had, first of all, do you feel, feel compelled to invest in it? And secondly, where would you if you did feel compelled? Um, no and no, I wouldn't. Yeah. No, absolutely. Like to me, it's, it is like Bitcoin. Like it, it's probably going to be something, but how it's going to play out and who's right. going to be on top when it does, I don't think anybody knows, and I think you're fooling yourself if you think you do know. So why would I invest Ooh. in something where I have no idea how it's going to play out? Now, with that said, if I'm right and AI is going to be as revolutionary as I think it is going to be over the next 10 years, it probably has massive consequences for the global capitalist economy as a whole. So- our traditional ways of assessing the future of any business uh, is up in the air as well. You know, the, the Sam's got this great statement. I was reading a bunch of his recent quotes this morning, actually, and the the thing that he says that I think people all need to think about is he said the people that most the, the thing that most people don't get about what's happening right now is about the cost. He calls it the cost of cognition. I tend to refer to it as the cost of intelligence. Mm-hmm. The cost of intelligence is about to drop through the floor. So we're used to being in a world where if you want to develop an intelligence, you need to take a human, you need to raise them, give them primary education, mm-hmm. secondary education, tertiary education. Then they need to go and devote themselves with a passion and a focus to a particular domain for decades to become really, really good at it. And then you've got an intelligence, somebody that's really intelligent on medicine or biology or investing or whatever it is. And those people have limited time, limited energy that they can devote to any particular exercise. If you want to hire them and they're hireable, not doing their own thing, it costs you a lot of money because there's a lot of competition for them because they're an expert in this particular domain. And then they're going to die one day and all of that's gone. That expertise, they they might have written some books or whatever, but somebody then needs to read those books and spend 40 years developing an intelligence. What's about to happen is the cost of intelligence is going to become near zero. Like the cost of communications did over the last 20 years. You you remember the days when you used to ring somebody interstate and it would cost you $2 a minute or internationally? Oh, yeah. And that would be... Dad would be like in the background saying, come on, that's enough. Yeah. well, Chris, It's costing me a fortune. Chrissy calls yeah. her mum who has Alzheimer's in Arizona and she still says, well, this must be costing you a fortune. <laughs> um, you know, if you had said to somebody, imagine going back to 1990 and saying, you know what, by 2010, you'll be able to speak to anybody anywhere in the world for as long as you like, full video and it mm-hmm. will, won't cost you anything. It's basically free because you're paying for basic internet access. What's that? Oh, don't worry about mm. it. You'll understand, You'll find out. <laughs> you're paying for it like 
50 bucks a month somewhere else and it's all just bundled in yeah. and you can talk to anyone for any length of time people would have been like no that's not that's not going to happen but the cost of telecommunications dropped to near zero right mm -hmm. that's what's about to happen with intelligence in the next 10 years as sam mm -hmm. says imagine that anybody can have 10,000 experts on hundreds of different domains working on a problem or a business for them for next to zero dollars. What are the implications of that to society when we all have thousands of highly intelligent minds available to us, and not just in the Western world, but in Africa and developing countries mm -hmm. and Asia and everywhere around the world, yeah. where everyone can tap into this? Like, we've never gone through a revolution like this before that's going to happen at with at this speed with this low barrier to entry it's going to be uh fundamentally uh, if it plays out like i think it will it could all come to a crashing halt for a variety of reasons but if it plays out like it is going to play out it's going to be it's going to have far reaching impacts on the economy in general and um yeah look look i agree with you however i think there's a couple of guidelines that I can draw and, and that kind of that kind of speech I think I heard a lot in the dot-com boom right because we have gone through a generational cost of intelligence quantum shift it happened in 2000 when you could type into Google tell me about or define or help me do etc cetera, etc cetera, whatever it was and get access to a lot of information very very quickly and that led to huge productivity gains. And that's probably been the only thing that's, that's been driving productivity gains in the last 20 or 30 years in most Western economies. It's been the digitization of of knowledge and how it's used. And I think so, I agree with you. Once you get access to chat GPT on steroids or whatever it's going to look like, that'll go through it again. But I think there's a couple of caveats I'll put on that. I actually think the big money will go to the person who produces the GUI interfaces for AI. And I think the, 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 you know, you'd hope there's somebody out there right now who's thinking that if I, what if I have this kind of, you know, floating genie screen and if I have a, an emotional problem, right? If my boyfriend dumps me or my girlfriend dumps me, I can go and talk to the big blue genie and they can give me really, really good advice. Well, it talks to you in Robert Williams' probably, voice and then do a song and a dance. Yeah, could be, but that but that could be the winner out of AI, right? Because regardless of how well you and I use AI, the vast population out there couldn't give a shit about intelligence. That's the problem with the human race, Cam. <laughs> like I was going for my walk today and I saw any number of young women with their bare midriffs and their six packs and I thought, Hello. I thought, that's what you've optimized your life for, you know. It's, Are you complaining it's about this? Evolutionary. I'm not complaining <laughs> about it, but but tell me, tell me what they're going to ask AI about, or how super intelligence is going to help their life, except for perhaps in getting better supplements and and better exercise routines. <laughs> so it's the it's the the person who provides the GUI interface for people who don't think they need AI but do need answers is going to probably kill it. Well, it, it'll just... But it'll be something left field like It'll that. be built into all of our devices within the next couple of years. It'll be built into your phone. It'll be built into your watch. 
It'll be built into your glasses. It'll be built into everything. Um, but I think the, the analogy that you made with the internet is the closest thing that we have. But the difference, as I think of it, is the internet gave us access to information. It democratized and reduced to near zero access to information. You didn't need to go buy the Encyclopedia Britannica if you wanted to learn something. Mm-hmm. You know, first of all, it was Encarta on a CD-ROM, and then it went from yeah. Encarta to Wikipedia and the internet. And I, I lived through, mm-hmm. you know, that I was at Microsoft for some of those years. And, you know, I, I've probably, we've, I don't know if we've talked about this story on this show before, but I've talked about it in some way before. You know, the story of Encarta is fascinating um, it's in a Microsoft history book somewhere that I remember reading. Like Microsoft went to Encyclopedia Britannica, first of all, in the early 90s and said, we're coming out with this computer called, this operating system can be called Windows 95. The computers are going to be shipped with CD-ROMs. We want to work with you to put Encyclopedia Britannica on a CD-ROM. And they were like, why would we ever do that? We sell these things for $2,000 mm. We've been doing it for a hundred years. We own the world. Screw you and the horse you rode in on. We're not going to do it. So Gates went, okay, fine, I get it. And then he went back and said, we'll build our own. And they built in Carter and Britannica basically went out of business within five years. Um, mm. Scaled down their business, you know, but yeah, they just, no, no, no one was buying Encyclopedia Britannica anymore when you can get in Carter for twenty nine ninety five on a CD-ROM. And then Encarta disappeared when uh, Wikipedia and the internet came along. But the internet gave us access to information. AI is going to give us access to intelligence, which is a step factor above mm-hmm. that. I don't need to read mm-hmm. something and learn it now because the AI will know it. I'll just say, do this. Figure out that problem for me. Solve cancer. And you've got until lunchtime. Because uh, I've got something else for you to do after lunchtime. Anyway, people can listen to my futuristic show if they want to hear us talk more about that. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV Club member, which is access to the checklist and and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have, invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc., sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you like the idea of value investing QAV style, but don't feel like you have the time or resources to learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But while he's not, <laughs> we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash 
Light, L-I-G-H-T. If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episode. And if you have any questions, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. The QAV Podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217182. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Thank you.